Hi, it's Dr. Deanne Ross here. I'm the Love Theorist. It's good to be with you. And thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. Uh, the, the offering today is from a section of the Love Theorist offerings, and it's called From My Bookshelf. And I have to start with being a bit surprised with myself that I actually don't have a copy of the book I'm talking about today as it was originally published, but rather a later um, annotated um, set of um, materials by Peter Singer, um, which include Animal Liberation, which is the book of his that I really want to focus on today. So Peter Singer um, is an Australian Western, white Western philosopher um, who wrote an incredibly important book in terms of its influence um, for animal rights and well-being, especially in Western societies. Of course, most people would know of the book, Animal Liberation. It was originally published in 1975 and has had other editions. The, the, the book that I'm drawing some excerpts of his Animal Liberation book from is called Writings on an Ethical Life um, from the Echo Press, uh, year 2000. So what I'm doing today is actually just going to make some comments of his philosophy on his argument for the equal consideration of the interests of all animals, that is all animals that who are human animals um, as a baseline moral philosophy. At the time he was writing and even now it is it is still not a mainstream idea that all animals are due uh, equal consideration. So I wanted to uh, begin with a couple of other caveat comments as well. Not only am I not going to say read everything that he said in this regard about what's important to do with animal liberation, but also that it was perhaps a bit curious in a podcast on love that I'm choosing a book that actually doesn't center the idea of love explicitly in in his writings um, and yet I do believe it is a book that is all about love love of other animals uh, and so for this reason I justify using it I cannot actually not use the book because I think it is so significant um, in influencing contemporary um, activism around the rights and well-being of animals. And the other, the reason why I'm not going to do a full comprehensive uh, commentary of reading from his, his book um, is because I want to focus in the next podcast on a contemporary writer, activist, uh, Christy Alger, her book, Five Essays of Freedom, uh, Political Primer for Animal Liberation 2020, is the book I wish to spend more time on to really kind of grapple with the complexity in current Western colonialist societies, species, species societies as well. Um, uh, as to how it has come to be uh, what she calls a complex animal industrial phenomenon, uh, the use and killing of non-human, some non-human animals. So that's where I'm heading, and but I just couldn't go past acknowledging Peter Singer uh, 
as a significant contributor to the early thinking in white Western cultures around the rights of animals. Of course, he's not the first white male philosopher to to speak about animals having rights, especially from the point of view that they can experience pain. But his is the book that many consider has shaped the contemporary animal liberation movement. So just as an example, I'll read for you what's on the back of uh, the book that I'm drawing from today, Writings on an Ethical Life. Um, Love him or hate him, you certainly can't ignore him. For the past 20 years, this was in 2000, and really since that time, of course, Australian philosopher and professor of bioethics, Peter Singer, has pushed the hot buttons of our collective conscience. In addition to writing the book that sparks a modern animal rights movement, Singer has challenged our most closely held beliefs on the sanctity of human life, the moral obligations of citizens of affluent nations towards those living in the poorer countries of the world, and much more. With arguments that intrigue as often and as powerfully as they entice, Writings on an Ethical Life offers the first ever comprehensive collection of Singer's best and most provocative writing. And and praise for Peter Singer. This is still on the back cover of the book. Peter Singer has probably had a larger popular readership than any professional philosopher since Bertrand, Bertrand Russell and more success in affecting changes in acceptable behaviour. That was the New England Journal of Medicine. Singer's documentation is unrhetorical and unemotional, his arguments tight and formidable. New York Times Book Review. Mr. Singer's influence extends to the world beyond the ivory tower, partly because he writes with such lucidity and quiet passion about genuinely pressing questions. The Economist. Okay, and the new on the front of the book it says um, Peter Singer may be the most controversial philosopher alive. He is certainly among the most influential. Okay, so I'm just going to um, read a fraction from his introduction, where he identifies the four ethical premises for his whole argument on non-human animals being of equal moral worth and equal regard should be given to their interests because they can feel pain therefore they have interests okay so it's on page um what's that xiv which is page 14 in the introduction um the issue on which i have my my most significant contribution to ethical thinking took a little while to become prominent he had precedingly been speaking about some of the other dimensions of his contribution, including um, in the area of euthanasia. Claims that I am the most influential living philosopher generally refer to my work on the ethics of our relations with animals. There is an element of media heart in such claims, of course, but the grain of truth in them is the fact that my book Animal Liberation played a significant role in kicking off the modern animal rights movement and very few living philosophers have had their ideas taken up in that way. In contrast, my views on the obligation of the rich to help the world's poorest people are potentially as significant as my thinking about animals, but they have, unfortunately, had much less influence. The issues raised by the critical work I have done on the idea of the sanctity of life 
of human life, including the discussion of euthanasia, has, that has aroused such hostility, are in one respect less important than those two topics of animal rights and the well-being of poorer countries. Similarly, because the treatment of animals and maldistribution of wealth affect far more people, or in the case of animals, sentient beings, and relatively simple changes in those areas could relieve so much suffering. It is my critique of the sanctity of human life that gets the media headlines, however, because it can easily be made to sound quite shocking, and there is no problem in finding people who will strenuously oppose it. Hence it provides controversy on which the media feed. All of these views, what he's saying, the, the central premises to his approach to his ideas on animal liberation, rest on four quite simple claims. First one, pain is bad, and similar amounts of pain are equally bad, no matter whose pain it might be. By pain here, I would include suffering and distress of all kinds. This does not mean that pain is the only thing that is bad or that inflicting pain is always wrong. Sometimes it may be necessary to inflict pain and suffering on oneself or others. We do this to ourselves when we go to the dentist or we do it to others when we remand a child or jail a criminal. But this is justified because it will lead to less suffering in the long run. The pain is still in itself a bad thing. Conversely, pleasure and happiness are good, no matter whose pleasure and happiness they might be. Although doing things in order to gain pleasure or happiness may be wrong, for example, if doing so harms others. So the first premise, pain is bad. The second, humans are not, a, not the only beings capable of feeling pain or of suffering. Most non-human animals, certainly all mammals and birds that we habitually eat, like cows, pigs, sheep and chickens, can feel pain. Many of them can also experience other forms of suffering, for instance, the distress that a mother feels when separated from her child, or the boredom that comes from being locked up in a cage with nothing to do all day except eat and sleep. Of course, the nature of the beings will affect how much pain they suffer in any given situation. So that's the ethical premise too, that humans are not the only beings who can experience pain and suffering. Ethical premise three, when we consider how serious it is to take a life, we should look not at the race, sex or species to which that being belongs, but at the characteristics of the individual being killed, for example, its own desires about continuing to live or the kind of life it is capable of leading. Principle three. So principle four is we are responsible not only for what we do, but also for what we could have prevented. We would never kill a stranger. But, excuse me, but we may know that our intervention will save lives of many strangers in a distant distant country and yet do nothing. We do not then think ourselves in any way responsible for the deaths of these strangers. This is a mistake. We should consider the consequences of what we do and of what we decide not to do. So that's the fourth ethical premise that what we do or don't do uh, matter. 
To most people, these claims are not in themselves shocking. In some respects, they seem like common sense. But consider the conclusions to which they point. Put together the first and last, pain is bad and we're responsible for what we do and don't do, and add in some facts about the suffering caused by extreme poverty in the world's least developed countries, and are about our ability to reduce that suffering by donating money to organisations that assist people to lift themselves out of this poverty. Consider, for example, the fact that some that buys us a meal in a fine restaurant would be enough to provide basic health care to several children who might otherwise die of easily preventable diseases. It follows from the first of my claims that the suffering of these children or their parents is as bad as our own suffering would be in a similar circumstance. And it follows from the last claim that we cannot escape responsibility for this suffering by the fact that we have done nothing to bring it about. Where so many are in such great need, indulgence in luxury is not morally neutral. And the fact that we have not killed anyone is not enough to make us morally decent citizens of the world. From the first and second premises, that is, pain is bad and other beings feel pain, I draw the conclusion that we have no right to discount the interests of non-human animals simply, for example, we like the taste of their flesh. Modern industrialised agriculture treats animals as if they were things, putting them indoors and confining them whenever it turns out to be cheaper to do so, with no regard at all paid to their suffering or distress, as long as it does not mean that they cease to be productive. But we cannot ethically disregard the interests of other beings merely because they are not members of our species. Note that this argument says nothing at all about whether it is wrong to kill non-human animals for food. It is based entirely on the suffering that we inflict harm on farm animals when we raise them by the methods that are standard today. The third premise, um, when taking a life, um, what, what are the bases for it being morally okay to take a life is probably the most controversial because we're so used to thinking of killing a member of our own species as invariably much more serious than killing a member of any other species. But why should that be? Mere difference of species is surely not a morally significant difference. Suppose that there were Martians, just like us, in respect of their abilities to think and to care for themselves, in their sense of justice and any other capacities we care to name, but of course not members of the species Homo sapiens. We surely could not claim that it was all right to kill them simply because of the different species. We might, of course, try to find some other differences of greater moral relevance between humans and members of other species. If, for example, we think that it is more serious to kill a human being than it is to kill a non-human animal, and we hold this view because we believe that every human being and no other earthly creature has an immortal soul, then our position is not contrary to the third premise, for it is, a, it is taking the view that there is a characteristic that is a possession of an immortal soul that makes it worse to kill some being than others beings than others, and that happens to be possessed by all and only members of our species. 
My disagreement with that position is simply that I see no evidence for belief and in, in an immortal soul, let alone one that happens to be the exclusive property of our species. The third premise helps to explain what is true and what is misleading in the common assertion that I think the life of a human being is of no greater value than the life of an animal. It is true that I do not think that the fact that the human is a member of the species Homo sapiens is in itself a reason for regarding his or her life as being of greater value than that of a member of a different species. But as I argue in more detail in Extracts from Practical Ethics and Rethinking Life and Death, human beings typically, though not invariably, do have desires about going on living that non-human animals are not capable of having and that does make a difference. I should say at this point, not everything that Singer says do I agree with. Um, in the general sense, I agree with his main arguments. Thus, I have no doubt that the events that we read are about are all too often in our newspapers when someone gets a gun and starts randomly killing people in a school, church or supermarket are more tragic than shooting of a number of animals in a field would be. Again, this would be a contentious point um, for people who support the animal liberation movement. Though the third premise must be part of any full grounding of my views about why it is worse to kill some beings than others, some of my claims about euthanasia could be derived from the first and fourth premises alone, combined with widely accepted medical advice. Now, I don't go into this discussion um, here or later in, in this chapter from animal liberation on, on the moral um, moral arguments around the taking of human lives um, but just to say he goes on here to argue about uh, the the moral moral regard of taking life of humans as being quite complicated let me just catch the point which is over the next page The aim of practical ethics is not to produce a theory that will match all of our conventional moral responses and thus confirm us in the views we already hold. Those responses come from many different sources. Sometimes they vary according to the customs of the society they come from. Even when they're more or less universal among human societies, they may, may be no more than a reflection of the interests of the dominant group. That was true of justifications of slavery for the centuries were that for centuries were predominant in European slaveholding societies. It remains true in many parts of the world of the view that a married woman should obey her husband. It is not too big a step to see the same self-interested factors at work in our common moral views about the way in which we may use animals. Here, as on many other moral issues, Christianity has for 2,000 years been a powerful influence on the moral institutions of people in Western societies. People do not need to continue to hold religious beliefs to be under the influence of Christian moral teaching. Yet without the religious beliefs, for example, that God created the world, that he gave us dominion over the other animals, that we alone of all his creation have an immortal soul, the moral teachings just hang in the air without foundations. 
If no better foundations can be provided for these teachings, we need to consider alternative views. So it is with the question of euthanasia, which along with suicide has in non-Christian societies like ancient Rome and Japan been considered both a reasonable and an honourable way of ending one's life. The shock with which some people react to any suggestion of euthanasia should therefore be not the end of the argument, but a spur to reflection and critical scrutiny. Just coming across to page um, XIX in, in the introductory chapter. Given that ethics can be very demanding, what do we say uh, to say to the amoralists who ask why they should act ethically at all? The question leads us to think about the ultimate values, the deepest goals by which we live our lives, and here we tend to run up against the limits of philosophical argument. Is it still possible at this fundamental level to give reasons for choosing one way of life in preference to another? Is it at all a matter of what will make us happy, happier or live a more meaningful life and fulfilling life? Here we move across the ill-defined border between philosophy and psychology and can no longer find chains of reasoning that should persuade any moral person. Were we incapable of empathy, of putting ourselves in the position of others and seeing that their suffering is like our own, then ethical reasoning would lead nowhere. If emotion without reason is blind, then reason without emotion is important. Coming now to the chapter uh, that is in this, this book on writings of an ethical life, and it's a chapter, as I was saying at the beginning, from Animal Liberation, and it's called All Animals Are Equal, and it's on page 28. And at the heading it says, um, All Animals Are Equal, or Why the Ethical Principle on Which Human Equality Rests requires us to extend equal consideration to animals too. Animal liberation may sound more like a parody of other liberation movements than a serious objective. The idea of the rights of animals actually was once used to parody the case for women's rights. When Mary Wollenscraft, a forerunner of today's feminist, published her Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1792, her views were widely regarded as absurd and before long, an anonymous publication appeared entitled A Vindication of the Rights of Brutes. The author of this satirical work, now known to have been Thomas Taylor, a distinguished Cambridge philosopher, tried to refute Mary Wollenscraft's argument by showing that they could be carried one stage further. If the argument for equality was sound when applied to women, why should it not also be applied to dogs, cats and horses? The reasoning seemed to hold for these brutes too, yet to hold that brutes have rights was manifestly absurd. Therefore, the reasoning by which this conclusion had been reached must be unsound, and if unsound when applied to brutes, it must also be unsound when applied to women, since the very same arguments had been used in each case. If that is not a concerning position to take, um, and that it's a white male privileged person 
let's say, is not surprising. Um, and yes, I'm a feminist. <laughs> in order to explain the basis of the case for equality of animals, it will be helpful to start with an examination of the case for the equality of women. Let us assume that we wish to defend the case for women's rights against attack by Thomas Taylor. How should we reply? One way in which we might reply is by saying that the case for equality between men and women cannot validly be extended to non-human animals. Women have a right to vote, for instance, because they are just as capable of making rational decisions about the future as men are. Dogs, on the other hand, are incapable of understanding their significance in voting, so they cannot have the right to vote. There are many other obvious ways in which men and women resemble each other, while humans and animals differ greatly. So it might be said men and women are similar beings and should have similar rights, while humans and non-humans are different and should not have equal rights. Got to watch out when you're reading Singer's work because he spends a bit of time arguing the counter-argument before he puts his own, as he was just doing there. He does not believe um, that there should not be equal rights between humans and non-humans. The reasoning behind this reply to Taylor's analogy is correct up to a point, but it does not go far enough. There are obviously important differences between humans and other animals, and these differences must give rise to some differences in the rights that each have. Recognising this evident fact, however, is no barrier to the case for extending the basic principle of equality to non-human animals. The differences that exist between men and women, and people of all genders, I would want to say, um, are equally undeniable. And the supporters of women's liberation are aware that these differences may give rise to different rights. Many feminists hold that women have a right to an abortion on request. It does not follow that since these same feminists are campaigning for equality between men and women, that they must support the rights of men to have abortions too. Since a man cannot have an abortion, it is meaningless to talk of his right to have one. Since dogs can't vote, it is meaningless to talk of their right to vote. There is no reason why either women's liberation or animals' liberation should get involved in such nonsense. The extension of the basic principle of equality from one group to another does not imply that we must treat both groups in exactly the same way or, ex or grant exactly the same rights to both groups. Whether we should do so will depend on the nature of the members of the two groups. The basic principle of equality does not require equal or identical treatment. It requires equal consideration. Equal consideration for different beings may lead to different treatment and different rights. So there is a different way of replying to Taylor's attempt to parody the case for women's rights, a way that does not deny the obvious differences between human beings and non-humans, but goes more deeply into the question of equality and concludes by finding nothing absurd in the idea that the basic principle of equality also applies to so-called brutes. At this point, such a conclusion may appear odd, but if we examine more deeply the basis on which our opposition to discrimination on the grounds of race or sex ultimately rests, 
We will see that we would be on shaky ground if we were to demand equality for blacks, women and other groups of oppressed humans while denying equal consideration to non-humans. So he goes into quite a lot of discussion about um, arguing um, the illogic and the immorality of prejudice against um, people because of their racial um, difference or their sexual difference from the majority um, dominant group. I won't go into those that level of detail. We just pick up a little bit later on page 31. And if it, if it goes silent for a moment, um, please don't. Don't worry, I'm just getting to the next page. And I do apologise for the crow who's been very vocal in the background. This is page 31. Fortunately, there is no need to pin the case for equality on one particular outcome of a scientific investigation. The appropriate response to those who claim to have found evidence of genetically based differences in ability among races or between the sexes is not to stick to the belief that genetic explanation must be wrong, whatever evidence to the contrary may turn up. Instead, we should make it quite clear that the claim to equality does not depend on intelligence, moral capacity, physical strength, or similar matters of fact. Equality is a moral idea, not an assertion of fact. There is no logically compelling reason for assuming that a factual difference in ability between two people justifies any difference in the amount of consideration we give to their needs and interests. And I just find this a very compelling part of his whole argument. The principle of the equality of human beings is not a description of an alleged actual equality among humans. It is a prescription for how we should treat human beings. And he goes on to say how that therefore follows for non-human beings. Jeremy Bentham, the founder of the Reforming Utilitarian School of Moral Philosophy, incorporated the essential basis of moral equality into his system of ethics by means of the formula, each to count for one and, no, one, and none for more than one. In other words, the interests of every being affected by an action are to be taken into account and given the same weight as the like interests of any other being. A later utilitarian, Henry Sidwick, put the point in this way. The good of any one individual is of no more importance from the point of view, if I may say so, of the universe than the good of any other. More recently, the leading figures in contemporary moral philosophy have shown a great deal of agreement in specifying as a fundamental presupposition of their moral theories some similar requirement that works to give everyone's interests equal moral consideration. Although these writers generally cannot agree on how this requirement is best formulated. It is an implication of this principle of equality that our concern for others and our readiness to consider their interests ought not to depend on what they are like or on what abilities they may possess. Precisely what our concern or consideration requires us to do may vary according to the characteristics of those affected by what we do. Concern for the well-being of children growing up in America would require that we teach them to read. Concern for the well-being of pigs may require no more than that we leave them with other pigs in a place where there is adequate food and room to roam freely. But the basic element, the taking into account of the interests of the being, 
whatever those interests might be, must, according to the principle of equality, be extended to all beings, black or white, masculine or feminine, human or non-human, and all, all levels and types of diversity between those categories and across those categories. It's on this basis, this is page 33, I should say, it's on this basis that the case against racism and the case against sexism must both ultimately rest. And it is in accordance with this principle that the attitude that we may call speciesism, by analogy with racism, must also be condemned. Speciesism, the word is not an attractive one, but I can think of no better term, is the prejudice or attitude of bias in favour of the interests of members of one's own species against those of members of other species. If possessing a higher degree of intelligence does not entitle one human to use another for his or her own ends, how can it entitle humans to exploit non-humans for the same purpose? Many philosophers and other writers have proposed the principle of equal consideration of interest in some form or other as a basic moral principle, but not many of them have recognised that this principle applies to members of other species as well as our own. Jeremy Bentham was one of the few who did realise this. In a forward-looking passage, written at a time when black slaves had been freed by the French, but in the British dominions were still being treated in the way we now treat animals, Bentham wrote. The day may come when the rest of the animal creation may acquire those rights which never could have been withholden from them but by the hand of tyranny. The French have already discovered that the blackness of the skin is no reason why a human being should be abandoned without redress to the caprice of a tormentor. It may one day come to be recognised that the number of the legs, the velocity of the skin or the termination of the osocrum are reasons equally insignificant for abandoning a sensitive being to the same fate. What else is it that should trace the insuperable line? Is it the faculty of reason? or the, perhaps the faculty of discourse. But a full-grown horse or dog is beyond comparison a more rational as well as a more conversable animal than an infant of a day or a week or even a month old. But suppose they were otherwise, what would it avail? The question is not can they reason or can they talk, but can they suffer? In this passage, Bentham points to the capacity for suffering as the vital characteristic that gives a being the right to equal consideration. The capacity for suffering, or more strictly, for suffering and or enjoyment and happiness, is not just another characteristic like the capacity for language or higher mathematics. Bentham is not saying that those who try to mark the insuperable line that determines whether the interests of a being should be considered happen to have chosen the wrong characteristic. By saying that we must consider the interests of all beings with the capacity for suffering or enjoyment, Bentham does not arbitrarily exclude from consideration any interests at all, as those who draw the line with reference to the possession of reason or language do. The capacity for suffering and enjoyment is a prerequisite for having interests at all. The condition that must be satisfied before we can speak of interests in a meaningful way 
it would be nonsense to say that it was not in the interests of a stone to be kicked down along the road by a schoolboy. A stone does not have an interest because it cannot suffer. Uh, a point that could be, um, I think, is contentious uh, as to whether a, a stone has is a living being. Um, the capacity for suffering and enjoyment is not, however, necessarily not only necessary but also sufficient for us to say that a being has interest at an absolute minimum an interest is not suffering a mouse for example does have an interest in not being kicked along the road because it will suffer if it is in misguided attempts to refute the arguments of this book some philosophers have gone to much trouble developing arguments to show that animals do not have rights they have claimed that to have rights, a being must be autonomous or must be a member of a community or must have the ability to respect the rights of others or must possess a sense of justice. These claims are irrelevant to the case of animal liberation. The language of rights is a convenient political shorthand. It is even more valuable in the era of 30-second TV news clips than it was in Bentham's day. But in the argument for radical change in our attitude to other animals, it is in no way necessary. If a being suffers, there can be no moral justification for refusing to take that suffering into consideration. No matter what the nature of the being, the principle of equality requires that its suffering be counted equally with the like suffering in so far as rough comparisons can be made of any other being. If a being is not capable of suffering, of experiencing enjoyment or happiness, there is nothing to be taken into consideration. Again, I have difficulty with that claim. So the limit of sentience, using the term as a convenient, if not strictly accurate shorthand for the capacity to suffer and or experience enjoyment, is the only defensible boundary of concern for the interests of others. To mark his boundary by some other characteristic like intelligence or rationality would be to mark it in an arbitrary manner. Why not choose some other characteristic like skin colour, which of course Singer disagrees with. Races violate the principle of equality by giving greater weight to the interests of members of their own race when there is a clash between their interests and the interests of those of another race. Sexes violate the principle of equality by favouring interests of their own sex. Similarly, speciesists allow the interests of their own species to override the greater interests of members of other species. The pattern is identical in each case. I'm reading from page 35 at this time. Most human beings are speciesist. The following chapters show that ordinary human beings not a few exceptionally cruel or heartless humans, but the overwhelming majority of human beings take an active part in, acquiesce to, and allow their taxes to pay for practices that require the sacrifice of the most important interests of members of other species in order to promote the most trivial interests of our own species. There is, however, one general defence of the practices to be described in the next two chapters that needs to be disposed of before we can discuss the practices themselves. 
It is a defense which, if true, would allow us to do anything at all to non-human beings for the slightest reason and for no reason at all without incurring any justifiable reproach. This defense claims that we are never guilty of neglecting the interests of other animals for one breathtakingly simple reason. They have no interests. Non-human animals have no interests, according to this view, because they're not capable of suffering. By this is not meant merely that they're not capable of suffering at all in the ways that human beings are, for instance, that a calf is not capable of suffering from the knowledge that it will be cooled in six months' time. That modest claim is no doubt true, but it is, does not clear humans from the charge of speciesism, since it allows that animals may suffer in other ways, for instance, by being given electric shock, shocks or being kept in small cramped cages. The defence I'm about to discuss is much more sweeping, although correspondingly less plausible, claim that animals are incapable of suffering in any way at all, that they are in fact unconscious automata, possessing neither thoughts nor feelings, nor a mental life of any kind. Although we shall see in a later chapter the view that animals are automata, that animals are automata was proposed by the 17th century French philosopher René Descartes. But to most people, then and now, it is obvious that if, for example, we stick a sharp knife into the stomach of an anaesthetized dog, the dog will feel pain. That this is so is assumed by the laws in most civilized countries that prohibit the wanton cruelty to animals. So he goes on in this way and um, just putting the argument that animals, other, other non-human animals, can experience pain and have, therefore, the, the right to be considered as equal moral worth to humans. Just going across a couple more pages and make some final comments um, at this time from Singer's really interesting work. This is page 42. It may be objected that comparisons of the suffering of different species are impossible to make, and that for this reason, when the interests of animals and humans clash, the principle of equality gives no guidance. It is probably true that comparisons of suffering between members of different species cannot be made precisely, but precision is not essential. Even if we were to prevent the infliction of suffering on animals only when it is quite certain that the interests of humans will not be affected to anything like the extent that animals are affected, we would be forced to make radical changes in our treatment of animals that would involve our diet, the farming methods we use, experimental procedures in many fields of science, our approach to wildlife and to hunting, trapping and the wearing of furs, and areas of entertainment like circuses, rodeos, and zoos. As a result, a vast amount of suffering would be avoided. Now, I'm just going to poise uh, the end part of um, reading from Singer's Animal Liberation uh, for what is really crucial, but I don't take further time um, expounding um, how he approaches this issue. So far, I have said a lot about inflicting suffering on animals, but nothing about killing them. This omission has been deliberate. The application of the principle of equality to the infliction of suffering is, in theory at least, fairly straightforward. 
pain and suffering are in themselves bad and should be prevented or minimized, irrespective of the race, sex or species of the being that suffers. How bad a pain is depends on how intense it is, how long it lasts, but pains of the same intensity and duration are equally bad, whether felt by humans or animals. The wrongness of killing a being is more complicated. I have kept and shall continue to keep the question of killing in the background because in the present state of human tyranny over other species, the more simple, straightforward principle of equal consideration of pain or pleasure is a sufficient basis for identifying and protesting against all the major abuses of animals that human beings practice. Nevertheless, it is necessary to say something about killing. Just as most human beings are speciesist in their readiness to cause pain to animals when they would not cause a similar pain to humans for the same reason, so most human beings are speciesist in their readiness to kill other animals when they would not kill human beings. We need to proceed more cautiously here, however, because people hold widely different views about when it is legitimate to kill humans as the continuing debates over abortion and euthanasia attest. Nor have moral philosophers been able to agree on exactly what it is that makes it wrong to kill human beings and under what circumstances killing a human being may be justified. Let us consider first the view that it is always wrong to take an innocent human life. We may call this the sanctity of life view. People who take this view oppose abortion and euthanasia. They do not usually, however, oppose the killing of non-human animals. So perhaps it will be more accurate to describe this view as the sanctity of human life view. The belief that human life and only human life is sacrosanct is a form of speciesism. And he goes on with what is quite a sophisticated conversation um, and there are some aspects of it that I actually don't agree with, uh, where he's trying to compare the the importance of a life of um, a non-human animal with with some humans um, as having the non-human having a higher value to life than some human some humans with certain characteristics. I find that really very. Um, contentious and and at this stage I don't want to run a critique of the book but mainly to identify some of the key ethical premises that I base my love ethics theory on and to acknowledge the importance of his work nevertheless in opening up the debate and influencing the animal liberation movement and next time as I was saying at the beginning I'd like to actually carry forward his discussion about the moral wrongness of killing other animals um, by referring to Christy Alger's work, Five Essays for Freedom, a political primer for animal advocates to bring the debate and the contemporary context influencing the rights and well-being of animals to, to the fore. Um, okay, so I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the podcast. Uh, I apologise for the crow, but he just comes when he comes. And, um, and I look forward to sharing with you again. And if you have any comments, feel free to leave them on, on the website. And um, I'll see you next time. Bye.